You're listening to a message that was recorded live at Roots Community Church in Costa Mesa, California. Roots exists to celebrate the glory of God through lives transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about our community, visit us at rootschurch.net. Our text is Matthew 16, verses 21 to 28. If you're able to remain standing, let's read God's word. From that time... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Verse 22, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he, Jesus, turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then verse 24, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man, verse 26, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, There are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Beloved, this is God's holy word. Please be seated. We are continuing now in our study of the gospel of Matthew this morning, and we come again to this most famous, most pivotal chapter, chapter 16. To this point, Jesus has shown his disciples in chapter 16 that they are not to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They are not to be like them. They are to seek God for mercy and not spectacle. The Pharisees and the scribes wanted Jesus to perform another sign from heven. Show us a sign. Jesus' people are not to be like that. They are not to seek after Jesus for a sign, but to seek after Jesus for mercy. Furthermore, God's people are not to be like the Pharisees and the Sadducees in that we guard our hearts against the sinful and prideful teaching that comes from these religious elite. And finally, we're to look only to Christ for salvation. From our time two weeks ago, we also learned that the church, the ecclesia, the church is a group of people who have been called out by God And given by way of divine revelation, these people, the church, have been given by way of divine revelation the exclusive rights to reveal who Jesus is to the world. You'll remember Peter's confession after Jesus says to the disciples, what's the word on the street? Who do men say that I am? And they answered him, some say you're John the Baptist, some say you're Elijah, some say you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. But then he looks to his church his disciples, and he says, yeah, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, the spokesman of the group, stands and says, you, Jesus, you are the Christ, 
the, the king, you're the Messiah king of Israel, the anointed one promised of old. You're the Messiah king, the son of the living God. And Jesus looks at Peter and he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. And I say this, that you are Peter and on this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell, the gates of Hades and death shall not prevail against it. What a moment this must have been. What an exchange. This exchange has changed the entire world. This exchange in part is why we are gathered here today in and around the name of Jesus Christ. Imagine the thrill in the air as the disciples finally know without a doubt that they are following the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. No veiled revelation, no hinting. You are the Christ, the King, the anointed one. And Jesus says, yes, I am. Imagine the thrill. Imagine being Peter. For once, getting it right. The one who on behalf of the group made this heaven-sent confession regarding the most important person who has ever walked the planet, Jesus Christ. This, in short, was an in-zone moment. Now, I don't watch a lot of football, but I know the in-zone moments in football where you, you're so thrilled, you got it right, you worked so hard to get it in the end zone and you spike the ball and do the dance and then you begin to, to plan the celebration. This was an in-zone moment for Peter and the disciples. This was the end of their struggles and the beginning of a new era. The Messiah has come. He's heard our cry. Heaven has not been silent. Well, as you know, and as we have just read, the celebration doesn't last very long, does it? Instead, the tide, to change metaphors now from an end zone to an ocean, the tide dramatically shifts. All of the air of excitement gets sucked out of the room and Jesus says, you are absolutely right concerning your confession of who I am. And now I'm about to tell you what I came to do. You're right about who I am. And now I'm going to reveal to you what I came to do. There are three clear truths that we're going to discover in the text before us. Three clear truths. First, Jesus must suffer. This is what he teaches us. Number one, Jesus must suffer. Number two, if we're following this Jesus, we will suffer too. And third, Jesus reveals to us how it will all work out in the end. Jesus must suffer. We will suffer if we are following him. And finally, Jesus shows us how it will all work out in the end. First, Jesus must suffer. Look at verse 21 again with me. Listen to Jesus' language very carefully. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed 
and on the third day be raised. He must go to Jerusalem and suffer. In every other major world religion, the key leader of that religion may see the alleviation of suffering as a virtue. They may even claim to be a reliever of suffering in the world. Every key leader of every major world religion sees the alleviation, the, re the relief of suffering as a virtue, as a good thing. Jesus is no exception. For three years, Jesus went around alleviating all kinds of suffering, physical suffering and spiritual suffering and emotional suffering. And virtually every major religious leader sees the eradication of suffering as a virtue. But not a single one of these leaders sees moving toward their own suffering and death as a virtue. For instance, in Buddhism, Buddha is venerated all the way through, from the beginning to the end. He is venerated, he's not humiliated. Muhammad in Islam is venerated, celebrated, never humiliated. Brahma, Vishnu, Shima, all venerated, not humiliated. And yet, right on the heels of this great confession regarding the true identity of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, I not only came to relieve suffering, but I came to suffer myself. And in this single statement that we find here in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus puts himself in a category completely alone. Not only a key religious leader who comes to alleviate suffering and sees that as a virtue, but moves towards his own suffering. Not one religious leader from any major world religion is remotely like him. No, Jesus will not be venerated until he is humiliated. Another way they say that is he will not wear his crown until he's endured his cross. See, Jesus came not only to eradicate earthly suffering, no, he came to deal a death blow to the greatest problem facing mankind. And that is our rebellion against the holy God in the debt that we owe as a result of our rebellion. He came not just to release us from physical or emotional suffering. He came to pay a debt that hung over all of our heads. A debt that no earthly currency, no provision could ever come close to paying. No wielding of the sword and no army of chariots could ever defeat no, it would take God himself to come and die in our place to pay the ransom for our sin. In fact, this is the supreme message, not just of the New Testament, but of the entire Bible. From Genesis 3.15, the promise of rescue through the seed of the woman all the way to the, the sup, marriage supper of the lamb. It is one great story of redemption. Jesus is the Christ. He is the son of the living God and he came to suffer and die and to be raised to new life whereby he conquers all of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. And so Jesus tells his disciples, 
I must go to Jerusalem and suffer. I must. Well, Peter, being the newly minted leader and spokesman of the group and perhaps thinking that now all of his words are anointed, decides to pull Jesus aside. He decides to have a sidebar with the Christ. In verse 22, he says this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, that him is Jesus, began to rebuke Jesus, saying, far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. What a bold and foolish move from the apostle. Again, Peter has the audacity to give Jesus a sort of a side hug and pull him aside and have a a man-to-man, a heart-to-heart, a sidebar. Peter says, far be it from you, Lord. That's a clumsy translation in the ESV. A more literal translation is, may God be merciful to you. How condescending. May God be merciful to you. This shall never happen to you. Jesus said, I must suffer. Peter says, you shall not suffer. Clearly, Peter was feeling himself after the confession and he walked himself right into a ditch. In this moment, Peter forgot his own confession that he is the Christ, the King And kings make decisions. It's not a democracy. Jesus wasn't taking a poll on whether or not he should go to Jerusalem or suffer. No, he says, I must. It was a declaration from a king and Peter forgot who he was talking to. And instead of listening to Jesus and asking good questions, which is okay, it's okay to say, teacher, this is a hard saying. And oftentimes the disciples said, teacher, this is a hard saying. How is it that you're gonna die? Why? Instead of listening and asking good questions, instead, Peter acts like a a campaign manager trying to steer his candidate into a more persuasive campaign direction. Jesus, we just found out that you're the king of glory. Let's leverage that. And in no time, we'll have Rome on their heels Let's leverage that. You've just fed 5,000 and then again 4,000. You fed Jews, then you fed Gentiles. We've got a movement on our hands. Let's leverage this. This whole suffering king thing doesn't pull very well. Well, how does Jesus respond to Peter's rebuke? Look at verse 23. But he, Jesus, turned. Now, I, don't, I always try to imagine this. Jesus, so Peter pulls Jesus aside, has this sidebar, and I almost picture Jesus walking forward. Almost like, I need to pace this off a little bit. But he turns. So Jesus turns. Oof. Turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not, you are not setting your your mind on the things of God, but on the thing, 
things of man. The very first thing, and there's a lot to learn from this exchange, but the very first thing that we learn from this exchange, this certainly blew up in the face of Peter, but the very first thing we must learn as Christ followers is this, Jesus is not tameable. He's not tameable. He's not malleable like clay, where you can just sort of form him and shape him into the kind of Christ you want. He's the God of the universe, and therefore there is no rebuking him. In fact, to deny, to deny the wisdom of God for redemption in a very real sense is satanic. Now, I don't think Jesus is accusing Peter of being possessed by Satan or a demon. However, as another writes, Jesus is dramatically indicating that the perspective Peter represents, however unwittingly, is the same as Satan's. Jesus is saying, Peter, you're agreeing with Satan. When you say you shall not suffer, you're agreeing with Satan. Remember, at the core of Satan's temptation in the wilderness was this central lie. Jesus, you can achieve greatness without suffering. Behind every temptation of Satan in the wilderness to Jesus, you can have greatness without suffering. Take your crown, leave your cross. All of this I will give to you. Just take it, you can. And so in that moment, when Peter is saying, you shall never suffer, in that moment, whether he fully knew it or not, Peter was agreeing with Satan and not with God because there is no redemption for sinners without the suffering of the cross. And so Peter the rock becomes a hindrance for Jesus. In fact, the word hindrance in verse 23 literally translates, when Jesus says, you're a hindrance to me, that literally translates stumbling block. So Peter the rock becomes a stumbling block in a matter of paragraphs, which is yet another reason why we don't build the church on the papacy. Friends, before we move on from this point, if you have a Jesus who always agrees with you, you are not following the Jesus of the New Testament. If you have a tame, immalleable Jesus who always agrees with your politics, who always agrees with your view of sexuality, who always agrees with your view of masculinity or femininity, who always agrees with your desires and always agrees with your worldview, you are not following the Jesus of the New Testament. You're following the whims of your own heart and you're trying to push Jesus, put Jesus behind that. Let me just say to you, that's a dangerous place to be. You're not following Jesus. You're having a sidebar with yourself. No, Jesus will not be tamed he will only be followed. So when Peter, so when Jesus says, get behind me, what's he saying? You don't lead me. I lead you. 
Peter, your confession was heaven sent, and that was beautiful, but flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you. My Father in heaven revealed that to you. You don't lead the Christ. The Christ leads you. Okay, well enough. Jesus is unlike. He must suffer. He is unlike any other religious leader in that he moves towards his own suffering. Fair enough. Jesus is different. He must suffer. But Jesus isn't done. He goes on. He goes on to reveal to his disciples then and now that they too will suffer if they follow him. Look at verse 24. This is our second truth statement in our text. Verse 24. And then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever, verse 25, whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what, verse 26, for what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and yet forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? In this one statement from Jesus, all visions of triumphalism in the minds of the disciples fade away. Any visions of triumphalism in this life begin to fade away as a result of this sentence. No victory parade. No defeat of Rome. No spiking of the football. No banquets. No majesty. No opulence. From this moment on, Jesus has suffering and donkeys and beard ripping. And then Jesus says, by the way, if you're following me, that will happen to you also. All visions of grandeur and triumphalism get swept away in this one sentence. If you're to come after me, you will take up your own cross. No triumphalism in its place, suffering. Now one qualifier This doesn't mean that all of the Christian life is one of miserable suffering. There are indeed seasons of relative peace and circumstantial happiness. However, what this does mean is that a disciple is not greater than his master. If it's true, we follow the Christ a disciple is not greater than his master. Jesus traffics in suffering. Therefore, we shouldn't be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon us as though something strange were happening. It's interesting, just as Peter wrote more about Jesus being the rock of the church, the cornerstone, the foundation. We mentioned this a couple weeks ago. Ironically, it's Peter who talks about Jesus as being the rock more than any other New Testament writer. Peter also writes more about Christian suffering than any other New Testament author. He writes more about Christian suffering than anyone else, percentage-wise. 
And in 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13, a renewed Peter, clearly Peter received this from, from Christ. Listen to this. In 1 Peter 4, we should have it on the screen. If not, that's okay. 1 Peter 4, 12 and 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Peter says, suffering is not strange in the life of the Christian, it's normative. So enough already with the books and the blogs and the TV preachers saying that Christianity is about having this abundant, healthy life all of the time, and if you're suffering, there must be something wrong. That kind of teaching is from the pit of hell, it's not from the mouth of Christ. We should not be surprised when we suffer as though something strange were happening to us if we are following the Jesus of the New Testament. The reason that I and we are often so surprised is because we live honestly. We live in such opulence. We live with so much padding between us and hurt. And in the West, don't get me wrong, I love medicine and I love what we've been able to do with common graces, but we've built a theology around that. And so we're surprised. The rest of the church for 2,000 years, I would submit, was not as surprised as we were, are. Another qualifier, in no way do we hear Christ and the apostles calling people to go looking for suffering. So some people hear this, suffering as a virtue, as sort of what you do, and then they go to look for suffering. So this self-deprecating, I'm going to just suffer, I'm going to deny myself, and I'm going I'm to just give everything away so I can just feel it. That's not what Jesus is calling us to. Instead, as I said, if you follow the Jesus of the New Testament, suffering will find you. You don't have to find it. You're often coming out of a season of suffering only to find yourself moving into a season of suffering. <laughs> Philippians 1.29, Paul, beyond this, Paul the apostle sees suffering as a veiled gift from God. I wonder if you believe that. Some of you who aren't suffering right now go, yeah, cool, that sounds great. If you are in a season of suffering right now, you're like, how dare you, sir? Listen to Paul the Apostle, Philippians 1.29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Do you believe that? It has been granted to you, gifted to you, that you should not only believe, that's a gift, but you should also suffer. And if you look at redemptive history, by the way, God allows suffering to be poured out in some of his best. Some of his best suffer the most. How is that so? Well, if Paul's right, then he is gifting them. Perhaps the most famous section on suffering in the New Testament is 2 Corinthians 4, 
16 and 18, Paul again says, so we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, hear Jesus again. Peter, you're looking to the things of man, not to the things of God. Paul is echoing that sentiment as we look to the things that are not seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Lastly on this, Suffering has a way to humanize us like nothing else. Suffering has a way to make us feel vulnerable and needy, which is the most human we could be. On this point, the late David Pallison writes this, quote, the difficulties or sufferings that we experience the difficulties or sufferings that we experience necessitate grace by awakening a true sense of weakness and need in us. He says, this is where the spirit is working. People change because something is hard, not because everything goes well. (laughs) So don't be surprised if you are in your prayer closet and you're saying, Lord, change me. And then things go terribly wrong in your life. Because we don't change when things go well. We change when things are hard. He goes on to say, the Christian life, ministry, Christian life, traffics in trouble because Christ enters trouble, lives through trouble, is unafraid of trouble, speaks and acts into trouble. He says, suffering, struggle forces us to need God. And we learn to love the way Christ loves only by experiencing the hard things that he experienced in loving us, end quote. When we suffer, we become vulnerable and we hate that. Our flesh hates vulnerability. Our flesh loves autonomy. Self-sufficiency. I want to make enough money so that I'm dependent on no one. I want to be autonomous. I want to give, not receive. When we suffer, though, we become vulnerable. And when we are vulnerable, we are actually experiencing our humanity more clearly. We're most human when we are vulnerable because it's in those moments that we are aware of our greatest need for God. That's what it means to be a human, is to know you need God. To walk around like like a, a robot is to walk around thinking you don't need God. So suffering is that veiled gift in that it gets to the core of our our autonomy, and it begins to mess with us. And it feels like a crisis, doesn't it? It is. It's a crisis. Because in that moment, you're faced with a decision. What am I going to do? Well, I can pretend like this suffering is not happening. I can just say it's not happening. This This is not happening. 
this is not happening. (laughs) Or I can just numb it away. I can just numb it away. I can just drink it away. I can Netflix binge it away. I can make myself really, really busy so that I don't have to deal with this thing. Or you can say, oh God, what are you doing to me? What are you doing in me? What do you see in me that needs to change? God, I believe that you're sovereign and that you're good and that you ordain all things. You only plot good. Lead me now. Lead me behind Jesus. Am I suffering because of my own sin? Show me, Lord. Show me where I've been foolish. Help me to repent. Am I suffering because sin that's been done to me? Oh, God, help me to forgive. Help me to endure. Oh, God, help me. Am I suffering because of general fallenness, because I'm ill, because things are coming at me or happening within me that are outside of my control? Oh God, lead me. You know how to suffer well, Jesus. I want to follow you. I don't want to follow my heart. And so suffering is a gift in disguise because it results in our utter cry for help. And friends, I wish what I'm about to say wasn't true, but it is true. We don't get to pick our crosses. That's actually a line from Luther. We don't get to pick our sufferings. We don't get to say, oh, I'll be the financial suffering guy. You know, that's a, I'll choose that one. I'll take, if, if there's a list, I'll financially suffer for you, Jesus. Or I'll be the emotionally suffering person. Or I'll be the... No, no, we don't get to choose our crosses. We tend to do this, don't we? No, we only pick up our cross, whatever that may be, after we've denied ourselves. This is what Jesus is teaching, teaching Peter and the disciples. To follow Christ means that you must abandon your own lordship. See, if we're going to pick our own crosses, we're just in the driver's seat again. We're just like, I'll, I'll, I'll pick that one. I'll suffer for this one. I was so naive when Roots was born. Some of you guys know the story. It was horrific. It was horrific. The senior leader of the church that we were leading has a moral failure, leaves his wife, leaves the church, and it was horrible. And I, it, was, it was just the worst pain you can imagine, just people hurting and questions and accusations, and it was the worst. And I remember thinking, I remember thinking at 23 years old, well, now that that suffering's behind me, there's no other suffering ahead of me. Debt paid. That was the cross. Whew, glad that that's all over. What was followed? <laughs> More crosses, more suffering, more pain. And I don't say that to be some hero or sort of just love suffering. I don't, but I mean that to say we we don't get to be lords. We don't get to say this suffering and not this suffering, and now that I've suffered, I'm done. Frederick Bruner writes this kind of cheeky with this quote, but I'll explain. He says this, quote, self-denial is not so much giving up chocolates at Lent as it is giving up on ourselves as lords. It is the decision to let another lord rule my life. 
end quote. Now, I don't think Frederick Bruner's bummed on Lent. I am certain, save your email. I'm cool if you, sub, if you go through Lent. But here's the thing, on the West especially, we try to say, I'm going to pick and choose my cross. And that's not what Jesus is saying here. He's saying, you abandon your lordship. You give all control over to me. And then he says, is it worth it? Am I worth it? And then he answers the alternative. What's the alternative? Okay, what's the alternative? Jesus says, if you try to hang on to your life, you'll lose it. If you're your own Lord, in the end, you will die a pauper. He even says, if you're to gain all of the wealth and all of the comfort that the world could ever afford your aching soul, but in the end you knew that you would forfeit your soul, would you do it? And every one of us sitting here would say, no, no, no. But do we functionally believe that? When suffering comes, what are we go grabbing for? What are we medicating with? Do you see Jesus is, he says, I must suffer. And if you follow me, you will suffer too. He's bringing us into a crisis. And it is so gracious of him. It is so gracious of him to bring us into a crisis now and not then. Jesus must suffer and we will suffer. However, finally, Jesus says that suffering will not have the final word. It'll all work out in the end. All of your suffering will have meaning and purpose and will be vindicated in the end. Let's look at our final verses here, verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, for the son of man is going to come. For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. In the end, isn't it true? Isn't it true that in the end, we want to know that it was all worth it? That all the slander and shaming and accusations and trauma and depression and repentance and anxiety, was it all worth it in the end? Another way to say that is vindication coming. You can hear David, the psalmist, saying, vindicate me, O Lord, my enemies are surrounding me and they're shaming me and they're accusing me. Vindicate me, O God. Is vindication coming? Will the judge judge accordingly? Will heaven stay silent forever? And what Jesus says in verse 27 is no. Heaven will not stay silent forever. All wrongs will be made right. Every single one of them will be righted. 
every single tear fallen on the cheeks of his elect will be wiped away. Every evil will be dealt with finally. Jesus says it like this. He will come in the glory of his father and he will execute vengeance and retribution. Okay, that day's coming. That is hopeful. But do we have to? Do we have to wait for the second coming to taste this kind of vindication from his suffering and ours? Do we have to wait? And the answer is no. And the clues are right here in the text. We do not need to wait to celebrate his victory over suffering. Like, like two bookends of hope. Jesus mentions his victory over suffering and death at the beginning and at the end of this exchange. But the disciples, when they're first hearing Jesus, I can almost guarantee completely missed the resurrection reference. He says, Jesus says, I must go to Jerusalem and I'm going to suffer at the hands of my enemies. I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die. But then what does he say? In three days, I am going to be raised. The disciples left the conversation at suffer and death. (laughs) I can almost guarantee they didn't hear resurrection because I almost never hear resurrection and I know the resurrection's behind me. The second reference is here in chapter or verse 28 at the end, the other bookend. In verse 28, Jesus says, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the son of man coming in his kingdom. And most scholars agree that this is a reference to the resurrection. The first part of his second coming. In order for him to come again, he's got to rise again. He's got to come back from the dead. And so Jesus says, there are some standing here among me, one of your 11 at least of you 12, who will see me in my kingdom. So again, do we have to wait for the second coming of Christ to taste this victory. No, the resurrection of Christ is the visible and historical proof that death and suffering do not have the final say in the life of the Christian. So if you are in the, if you are in the claws of Satan this morning, I want you to preach the resurrection to yourself. I want you to meditate on the resurrection. I want you to picture in your head Jesus getting up from the grave. I want you to say to yourself again and again, suffering and death did not have the final word on my Christ and suffering and death will not have the final word in my life. Picture him getting up out of the grave. Unscathed by the things we're most afraid of. A crown does follow a cross. Power and love will eclipse fear and anxiety. This will not last forever. Broken bodies will not stay broken. The creator of the universe will stand back from his new creation and marvel at its unmovable goodness again. Jesus had to suffer to set us free. He must suffer. He had to die. 
We will suffer if we follow him. But in the end, all suffering will be vindicated, his and ours. Let me end with Peter again. At the end of his first epistle, Peter says this, just listen. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Let me pray. Father, on this side of the cross and resurrection, we thank you. We give you praise that you set your face like flint to Jerusalem and that you did not succumb to the temptations of your flesh, of the devil, of Peter, of your friends, and you did not set aside your main ambition, which was to suffer and die for us, for our sins. And we thank you that you got up out of the grave. You got up. And you're saying to us in your resurrection that those who are suffering because we follow you, we will get up too. Joy is coming. Vindication is coming. As sure as Christ is raised. And we look forward to that. I pray for those right now, Lord, who are in a season, in a valley of bewilderment. They don't have answers. All they have is questions. I pray, Heavenly Father, you would give them yourself. Should you be so kind as to answer questions and causes, so be it. But would you be the main solution, the main peace, the main solace for their souls, that you are with them, that you're there, that you're enough. God be with them. In Jesus' good name, amen.